Father, um, we know that it's uh, far easier to see specks in uh, other people's eyes than it is to see logs in our own eyes. And um, we know in your word it says that we flatter ourselves too much to detect or hate our own sin. Uh, and so, Father, we, we have sort of a knowledge that those are your words, but, uh, Father, we confess that we don't really live that. It's hard for us to live that and, and experience it. We ask, Father, that uh, you would be very kind to us this morning and pour the Holy Spirit upon us, not only us who are here, but those who are joining us uh, via the online medium, that the Holy Spirit would fall with fresh power upon us and make who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us on the cross ever more real to our hearts so that, Father, uh, we might uh, grow into that new life, that new life of self-knowledge and repentance and pursuit of justice and of mercy and of compassion uh, that you intend for your people. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So... um, Imagine uh, that, uh, I mean, depending on your age, for me, it would be maybe one of my kids uh, brings home a boyfriend or a girlfriend uh, for you. Uh, you have young kids or no kids, that wouldn't be the thing, but maybe it's your sister, your brother, uh, your nephew or your niece, somebody very close to you brings home somebody or brings to you to meet somebody that they've started to date. And uh, you're having a nice meal, uh, enjoying your time together. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that conversation, the uh, person, you know, so in, in my case might be one of, you know, the, 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 the boyfriend or the girlfriend that one of my kids has brought home or your brother, or your sister, all of a sudden in the conversation, they say a racial slur. Now, if you're, now for, for some of you, you probably are familiar with hearing racial slurs. Uh, and, because I know that happens, obviously, in, in Canada, and some of you might have friends who, who uh, make racial slurs. But for me, if, if it was like, I don't know, somebody who's come and might date my, wants to date my daughter uh, or, you know, date my son, and if they said a racial slur while we're having a conversation, like, I, first of all, I, I confess for me, because I'm not used to things like that happening, I would be gobsmacked. Like, I'd go, did I just hear that right? Like, I'd probably in first... And in fact, at first, sort of doubt that I actually heard it. Like, I know that I heard it, but I sort of doubt, like, I can't have heard that. Like, that's sort of amazing. And then you're talking for 10 or 15 minutes more, and then they say it a second time. Now you know they've said it. Now, I'd like you to hold on. Remember, and this is the, the person who wants to date your precious daughter or who's going to date your sister or your brother or your, you know, somebody like that, your, 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 your dad, you know, your dad or your mom are, are single and they want to date them. And you just heard them say these racial slur twice. Now hold that image or that example in your head as you start to read the text because it's going to help us to understand something that the Bible says which is very powerful uh, but not only about, this, about the, the issues of racism and prejudice, of favoritism and discrimination, uh, but also exa- in terms of how on earth you have justice and how on earth you show mercy in a world where things like that happen. So if you would uh, take your Bibles and turn in them to James chapter 2, uh, verse 8, we'll look at the text and see the wisdom, the practical wisdom, the very, very incisive wisdom that the Bible gives uh, into this particular topic and issue. And it goes like this, 
And those of you who uh, were here last week and, and remember, because I didn't put you to sleep, uh, were, uh, were watching it online, one of the things that we talked, the main thing we talked about last week was the problem of prejudice, discrimination, favoritism, and, uh, and how the Bible uh, says that, in fact, it does not at all fit with your walk with Christ, that, in fact, prejudice erodes faith. And faith erodes prejudice. And if prejudice, favoritism, discrimination isn't being eroded in your life, it could be a sign that you actually don't have a faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, because it's of the nature of the gospel to erode prejudice, favoritism, and discrimination. And of course, racism is uh, a very violent and hateful form of prejudice and discrimination. And so the text continues. That's what just went on just immediately before that. And it's going to help us to understand the first little bit that's said, because that's the context. The Bible very firmly says, in fact, if you remember correctly, in verse 1, it uses a plural word uh, to really bring home, uh, to emphasize it, that every type and form of prejudice, every type and form of discrimination, every type and form of favoritism is not at all compatible with your walk with Jesus. And here's how it continues in verse 8. If you really fulfill, so if, it's following sort of up on, in fact, you could also even translate as a bit of a however if. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what is the royal law? Well, it tells you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, and that word partiality is the word that can also be translated as prejudice, favoritism, or discrimination. That's, that's what the word is. If you show partiality, prejudice, favoritism, or discrimination, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, which is a very strong word, uh, violator, transgressor. It's a very firm uh, claim that you are doing something that's completely and utterly abhorrent to the royal law. And the royal law, for those of you uh, who don't know, it's, it's actually one of the interesting things about this text. It shows that Matthew, I mean, James is aware of the fact that Jesus is the one who said that this is the way to summarize all of what our Jewish friends call the Tanakh or the Torah, when we call the Old Testament, that all of the laws that you find in the Bible, they can be, that are, that are horizontal, can be summarized with this one statement, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's also very interesting, if you note in verse, in verse 8, it says that it, we are to fulfill this law. It doesn't say we are to keep it, but to fulfill it. There's a very, very important difference between these two words, keep and fulfill. Uh, and to keep it, well, you keep the speed limit, but you don't fulfill the speed limit. To make it sort of a very obvious one. You keep the speed limit, but you don't fulfill it. Fulfill it, when it says fulfill, it means that this law is propulsive. It gives you a quest for life. It describes where true north is so that you can orient what's going on in the world. What is, if, if you're in a workplace situation, a family situation, if you're trying to figure out how to apply the Bible and, and what texts are going on and what you should do, that what, what Jesus is saying, that's why it's royal because it comes from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is that you are to fulfill loving your neighbor. 
neighbor as yourself. That's, you're now, when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, he, in a sense, (laughs) gives you a boot, a loving boot, and says, this is your quest. (laughs) This is where you're to be headed in your life. It's not just a matter of keeping it, it's a matter of fulfilling it, entering into it. And as we all know, that if we were to try to do this in our workplace, in politics, in business, in art, in family, and in neighborhood, it's not just something you tick off, it propels you into a whole way of living. And it's fulfilled with this word love, and which is also going to be important, we'll look at again in a moment, by saying law, it's not just saying something like a principle, it's not like just saying like a type of logic, it's also including words. That to understand the words of the scripture, you are to understand that they come from the heart of the triune God who loves you. And that because from all eternity the Father has loved the Son and the Son has loved the Father and the Holy Spirit is on one level both a a loving person but also the very love that flows between the Father and the Son. And, And so every word that comes from the triune God is motivated, comes from love to teach you to love, to propel you into love. And he does this by telling you things. He, he writes, he, God causes words to be written. In a sense, rules, commands, that in fact, the mantra which is so popular today, uh, love is love, is in fact empty and vacuous. You need words to describe it, to ground it, to propel it, to help put guardrails up, to give you what that end result is. And that's what James is saying is all about it. And so what he's saying is to show any prejudice, any favoritism, any discrimination violates this law and all of the laws that which it summarizes. You can't say that you're keeping God's word if prejudice, discrimination, favoritism, partiality, and racism is at all a feature of your life. That's what the text is saying. But then the text moves in a very, very challenging direction. And you have to remember that when God causes his word to be written, he's writing it not just for people in in postmodern, post-capitalist Ottawa in 2021. He's writing it for people in Singapore, people in Iran. He's writing it for Korea. He's writing it for Christians who lived 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, that his word is transcultural trans-temporal, trans-linguistic, trans-ethnic, trans-racial. It's speaking into every culture. And as we all know, in many cultures, it's very easy to say, well, look at that. Who would have thought that God was woke? (laughs) And we can give ourselves all a good pat on the back and walk out the door. But no, 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 no. The Bible never allows us. Love never allows us to flatter ourselves and pat ourselves on the back, let us go off thinking, well, you know, know, I did that, good guy, good on me. It takes a bit of a turn. Look at what it does in verse 10. And by the way, if you go back and look at it later, you'll notice this is one of the strengths of the English Standard Version. Um, I don't, in my private devotions, I read the NIV, True Confession, my ESV uh, groupie friends uh, will all now not like me. I'll probably get hate mail. Uh, but the NIV is just very easy to read in my normal devotions and preaching. I always use the ESV. One of the things the ESV does, it's very good at getting connector words. 
uh, which the NIV, to make it easier to read, will smooth over often, or the New Living Translation, another fine translation. You go back and you'll notice the for, the for, the if, the if buts that go through. It's like there's a, it, there's a connection that goes through these verses. So note, in, in verse 10, it goes like this. So that was the grammar geek moment. I just lost some of you, and some of you are going, whoa, look at that grammar geek stuff. Yeah, anyway, so for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, this is a bit confusing uh, when we read it. In fact, um, some people will say, okay, George, is that saying that, I don't know, like me showing a little bit of, like, you know, is George, is that saying that, when it comes time for my taxes, if I sort of try to get away with a couple of income tax returns that I did in 2021, but it's going to really help me in 2020, and I try to slip them in and hope they don't notice it so it, I get a better tax. Like, are you saying that's the same as rape? That's the same as murder? Like, George, how does that make any type of sense? And, and if that's the case, then... Isn't the Bible just completely and utterly undercutting any attempt to live a moral life? Like, I thought that was sort of important to Christians. So, like, that doesn't make any, any, type, of a, any type of sense at all. And, and as well as that, don't you think, George, that's a bit harsh on people? Like, a bit judgmental? Like, how is that a loving thing to sort of make such a blanket statement about people? So you sort of go from thinking, okay, this is pretty powerful stuff, good stuff. You know, love, a quest, like that's stuff that we can understand and get behind. We might not be able to live it, but we can get behind it. And it now goes and says something which, for many of us, we think is maybe a bit extreme and not loving. So what's, what's going on here in the text? Let's think back to the story, if you remember, if I haven't put you to sleep, with this story, the illustration that I gave at the beginning of the service. What happens if... Your sister, your brother, your kid, uh, your dad, your mom brings home their new boyfriend or girlfriend, and in the course of the conversation, uh, they, they give you two racial slurs. Now, <laughs> true confession, in, in our house, I mean, I would, probably, I would probably just be sitting there thinking, I don't know what to say. My wife would go after the person. <laughs> Like, this is a good thing, by the way. This isn't a put-down for my wife. This is a good thing about my wife. She, she would say something about it. She'd step right up to it. I'd, I'd maybe not quite know what to say. I'd probably rather say, I'd like to think about it for a week and then do a sermon and talk about it, rather than knowing what I'd say right in the moment. But uh, what would you say? How many of you would believe the person if they said, oh, listen, you know, it just I had a glass of wine, you know, uh, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a bit of a joke. Uh, you know, I'm under a lot of stress. And they come up with a few excuses. How many of you would buy it? Zero of you would buy it. How many of you would be desperately concerned that your daughter, your son, your sister, your brother, your mother, your father is going to actually date this person and maybe marry them? How many of you would be deeply concerned? Why? Because you don't believe for a moment that it's just a slip of the tongue. What do every one of us believe? That it reveals something dark and twisted and wrong in that person. That's what all of us would believe. It reveals something dark and twisted and wrong 
in that person. What the Bible is doing here is it's actually saying, first of all, the, the text is not saying that there's no difference between small sins and big sins. It's, it's not saying that some tiny little lie that you've just said is the exact same thing as raping, raping somebody. It's not saying there's no difference between small and big sins. It is saying that even the smallest sin is revelatory. That even the smallest sin reveals something about who you are. That there is, in fact, something within you that is dark and twisted and not right. Now, it's really funny in our culture. Our culture doesn't know how to deal with this. On one hand, if I was to say that, I mean, once you actually can sit in coffee shops and all again, or more coffee shops and just a couple of them, if I was to say that to some people, they'd probably say, George, that's a terrible view of human nature. It's just wrong. Yet at the same time, I, 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 I would say to them, but if, if somebody told you that their 10-year-old was perfect and never done anything wrong in their entire life, would you believe them? In fact, if they said it with a very satisfied, self-confident smile, wouldn't it make you want to gag? Wouldn't you say that it only shows that they're not very smart or very wise or very attentive? In fact, isn't it the case that in every movie you watch or every story you read, that if you see something where it looks as if everybody is perfect, it means there is a great evil behind it? So why is it, on one hand, that our culture, on one hand, is addicted to the idea that fundamentally within us, there is fundamentally, that we're fundamentally good, yet at the same time, in our culture, we have a, a disbelief that anybody can actually act out of that fundamental goodness and only be good? Why is it that we have those two things in our head? And it's the reason is, and, and we don't, don't know how to put them together. Only the biblical gospel helps us to wisely put them together without despair. Because, you see, that's what often happens in our culture. We either despair of human beings, or we end up trying to ignore the reality of human beings and have an overly exalted view of their goodness, their niceness, and if not of them in general, of myself in particular. And the Bible here is actually pointing at something which is profoundly wise, profoundly rise, wise, that everything, every time we do something which is wrong, it reveals something about our state. And it also reveals that we can't fix it, because we know we can't fix it. So... Some of us might say, well, that's a bit of a bleak view of what it means to be a human being. And some might actually say, well, that's sort of what I thought about, about Christians, that Christians just have this view that everything is bad, everybody's wicked, everybody's a sinner. Like on Saturday Night Live, if they had somebody begin the skit by saying, I am a sinner, everybody would laugh because they know that there's a joke coming up, that they'll make fun of it. And so some might say, well, okay, George, you don't realize it, but you're in a Saturday Night Live skit, and one of the weird things about Christians is they don't laugh, they all listen, but all of us watching, we're laughing, because we know it's... So 
Well, let's see. The, the Bible moves, both deepens the issue and also gives resolution and hope in the next two words. And it goes like this in verses 12 and 13. So, that's a follow word, right? If, look at, actually, we'll read verse 11 again. For he who said, do not commit adultery, uh, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, in other words, how shall we then live? Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the title of the sermon. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I don't have a tattoo, but if I was to have a tattoo, that would be a good line to tattoo somewhere in my body. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It has legs. (laughs) It won't look ridiculous when I'm 90. I mean, it would look ridiculous when I'm 90, but at least I'd still be able to agree with it. But but listen to what this, and it's a bit confusing, law of liberty, and, and, and now it sounds as if you are being judged, but not being judged, and, and mercy, and, and but li- listen to it again. We'll read again those, those two verses. So, remember, now, given that you have this, this, any wrongdoing that you do reveals something, just as a racial slur, reveals a darkness of racism, a twistedness of racism. A perplexing thing because, once again, if this person at the table, they might be very witty, very smart, very, very well-educated, uh, love animals, love children, obviously love your, you know, your sister, your kid, your, your child, or whatever it is. And yet, despite the fact that they can be all these excellent things, there's, in fact, something twisted about them. In fact, it would be so twisted that you wouldn't want your loved one to marry that person, like you wouldn't. And, in fact, if he said, you've got to show me mercy... You'd say, I'm not showing you mercy. Do you think I'm an idiot? Think I'm a fool? I'm not going to show you mercy. Listen again. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what's going on in the text. I'm going to give you another thought experiment. Just to take a couple of seconds, and I want you to think um, of one or two instances where if, and this is just in your own life, not in somebody else's life, but just in your own life, one or two instances in your own life where if mercy had been shown, life would have gone far better. One or two things where if mercy had been shown, life would have gone far better. Now, I'm willing to bet that for most of us, we thought of times when mercy should have been shown to us. That you thought of times when mercy should have been shown to you. That you didn't think of a time when you should show mercy to somebody else. You see, if you just think about that, that that's the, that's the sort of the, the, the right, for those of us who are right-handed, it's the right-handed way of responding to it. It's the natural inclination. It it, it shows a type of self-centeredness and self-exaltation about each one of us. That we would first think of ourselves as being victims and not as ones who are 
needing to show mercy, needing to swallow the cost of showing mercy. In fact, if you think about it for a second, if it ends up being the case that we always want to receive mercy but virtually never show mercy, how can you ever actually wisely show mercy to that person? You see, if a person only wants to receive mercy but never actually give mercy, it shows that what they really want to do is manipulate you in the situation for their own good and exaltation. Think of it in a movie situation. Those of you probably, most of you probably have very far better tastes in movies and shows than, than I do, but I, I like ones with guns and good, you know, there's some type of a conflict, uh, you know, getting the bank robbers or stopping the spies or the terrorists or catching the murderer or something like that. And you come to a situation where uh, the, the, the person, the, 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 the terrorist or whatever, who's, uh, or the, the evil murderer, the, 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 the serial rapist, the serial murderer, uh, the, the good person, the cop, is, is there and they have them. They have them dead to the rights. They have the gun drawn. Uh, the person can't get away. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, they've been a victim by the, the serial killer, you know, maybe one of their loved ones, and, 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 and uh, they're not sure what to do. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the person who's the, the rapist or the murderer or whatever says, listen, you've got to show me mercy. Show me some mercy. You know, don't do it. Don't do something you regret. Show me some mercy. And, uh, and you're, you're the viewer, you know, there's another person beside says, no, 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 <laughs> take the shot, take the shot. Don't show them mercy. They're not, don't show them mercy. They're just going to abuse the mercy. They're just going to use the mercy. It's just going to be weakness. Take the shot, take the shot. And then, of course, you know, depending on the movie, uh, the person does put, you know, they decide they are going to show mercy. They, they step forward to not you know, kill them or do whatever. And, and once they, they let their guard down, in fact, the, the, the bad person uses it against them, beats them up or kills them and gets away. And, and we all see that in, in, in different situations in, in movies. And, and so if you go back to this puzzling phrase, it sounds as if God's only going to show mercy if you've shown mercy first. But what the text is trying to get at once again is a bit of an attempt for us to to reflect upon the real situation. See, when we show mercy to somebody, we show mercy in the hope that there's a restoration of order, that there's a walking towards justice, that there's a walking towards goodness, that there's some sense in the other person of gratitude, there's some sense that with this act of mercy, that there will be a walking in the way that is right and good and true. But if, in fact, you just show mercy to a person who never has no intention of doing that, no intention at all of doing that, most of us would say that's not really as much a case that mercy should be shown because the person is just wanting to use your mercy to continually further their own ends. And and maybe you show them mercy once, maybe you show them mercy twice, but if you continue to show them mercy and it's always just transgressed, then really all they're concerned about is exalting themselves and triumphing, and continuing to walk in a way which is not just and good and merciful. And so the Bible here isn't saying that God waits for you to start being merciful before he shows mercy. 
That's made clear by the very powerful statement that mercy triumphs over judgment. Because, you see, it's only in the biblical gospel that you start to have a sense of how mercy could triumph over judgment. That what we understand as Christians, that God never ceases being just. He's only just. His mercy isn't just sort of saying, I think I like these cronies of mine. It's not like... And we can pick on Trump right now, but the fact of the matter is is that every president, every president when they leave office, every president when they leave office, regardless of political affiliation, pardons their cronies. That's what they do. Those of you who are Republican types looking down your nose at Democrats, Republicans do it, Democrats do it, it's human. It's not showing mercy, what is it? It's ignoring the demands of justice. It's exercising privilege and prejudice and favoritism, and the Bible condemns it. The Bible condemns it. The Bible condemns it. The Bible condemns it. And no transgression is permitted and allowed because the person who does it is your hero. That is the path towards deeper evil. But what the Bible says, James would be thinking very, very powerfully of the fact that he is the younger brother of Jesus, that Mary and Joseph had children after the virgin birth, and James is one of those children that was born as a result of Mary and Joseph's marriage, and that James insulted Jesus. He thought Jesus was insane. He didn't believe anything that Jesus was saying is true. He did things to mock him, to undermine him, and when Jesus was in his darkest moment of problems when he's condemned by the authorities, the religious, the secular, the political, the cultural, the intellectual, the world powers, and Jesus is condemned. And when he dies upon the cross, James is not there. What does James know in his own life? Mercy triumphed over judgment. Jesus appears to James. It's one of the things which is told after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. James knows the tomb is empty. James knows that the body wasn't found. And James knows that they would never find the body because Jesus, risen and alive, appears to James and speaks to him with words of love and forgiveness. That James comes to understand that Jesus, when he died on the cross, that what James was to understand, that in James' place condemned Jesus stood, that the full demands of righteousness and justice were being upheld by God, but God does something at great cost to himself that James could not do for himself, and Jesus dies on the cross, condemned in the place of James' mockery breaking of filial bonds, and all of the other things that James had done to Jesus, Jesus dies in James's place. You see, all forgiveness, and mercy is a key part of forgiveness, all forgiveness is only forgiveness if justice is maintained, and the one who is wronged bears the cost of the wrong in their own person. For the sake of this profound mystery that only makes sense if it is the triune God that has in fact created the entire world, 
that sometimes for the good of your own soul and for the good of others and for the good of the city and the good of the nation, to swallow the desire for revenge, to die to reparation in an act of forgiveness is the act of wisdom and love. South Africa is a country that has many problems still, but they have far fewer problems because Nelson Mandela understood the importance of mercy and forgiveness, that he would swallow his desire for revenge and vindication and pay the price of that to set both him and his persecutors towards the path of freedom. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what do those other two phrases mean, just in sort of closing? What does it mean to say that we're judged by the law of liberty? What does it mean to say that if you don't show mercy, that uh, God won't give you mercy? It's an indicator language. We'll use the mercy one first. Tim Keller has a very wonderful uh, illustration about what it is that happens when you receive the gospel. And he says, what happens when you receive the gospel? It's as if God gives you new clothes, and the new clothes are way too big for you. Like, way too big. (laughs) But what happens is that as the gospel becomes more and more real to your heart, as the reality of God's forgiveness to you, who have something dark and twisted within that in your place condemned he stood, that, that there is this fundamental, God never surrenders justice, he never gives up on it, he never plays favorites, he doesn't show partiality, he doesn't show prejudice, he's not racist, not at all, and, and maintaining all of the demands of justice and, and truth and, 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 and goodness, yet still there is this mercy that comes from love. That is what can make you right with him, and it's all done by God for you. That, that as this grips you, and as you start to hear the words of Jesus that are spoken, that are words that are all f- words of love, that come from the love of the Father for the Son, and the Son of the Father, and the Holy Spirit loving the Father and the Son, and that every word of Jesus in terms of how you shall live comes out of love, and as you're gripped by the gospel, you start to grow up to fit the clothes. And showing mercy isn't a requirement to receive mercy, but a sign that you've started to receive the mercy. Just as the smallest sin is an indicator of a blackness and a darkness and an evil within, the showing of mercy is the sign that you're starting to grow into the clothes Because you see, God's intention for human beings and his intention for his children is that they never surrender the demands of justice. They never show favorites in terms of how justice is applied. I've been in lots of organizations where the CEO is given a pass because he's a CEO. But the Bible says the higher the authority, the more they shouldn't have a pass because the damage they can do is vastly greater. And what it's talking about in the terms of the law of liberty 
is if you understand that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's one of the several places in the Bible where there's this profound explanation of what the gospel is, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, then what we understand is that the way every one of us lives our lives when we've become Christians is that the law of liberty nestles between your justification and your glorification. And God wants both to be very real to our hearts because it's only as both are real to our hearts that we begin to learn how to live, that we begin to have the confidence to look at the the flaws and the issues and the sin of our own lives, and both to see their horror, but to understand that to a perfect God that horror was even greater, and yet in love, in your place, in my place condemned he stood. And so if you understand that the words of Jesus in terms of how we should live, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, and all of the other commands, but not committing adultery and not taking innocent life, that all of these are to be understood and lived, nestled between the reality of your justification in Christ and your glorification in Christ, that is liberty. It begins to free you. Free to be more honest about yourself. Free to be more honest and clear-eyed about the world. And maybe even freed up to start to show mercy. To not just to see past vengeance and to be willing to pay that price yourself that is needed for there to be mercy and forgiveness. And so it's a very, very wonderful thing. If you understand, as the gospel grips you, as you understand that in my place condemned he stood, and what that says about justice and mercy, then you understand that all of the words of Scripture emerge from one heart and one mind and one desire. And the words of Scripture are that as you are gripped by the gospel and, that the, and Jesus saves you, that what you are launched on is a quest for love, a a quest to be more loving. It is a quest to be more merciful. It is a quest to be free. That's why it's both the law of love, the royal love, and it is the law of liberty, because that is the quest. That is the, the journey that the Lord has put you on that will culminate in your glorification, not God weighing your merits, but having had him pardon your offenses. On Friday, I was... I, I wanted to have a chat with somebody from our congregation. We met in the Sun Life building. And um, uh, when we came in, I, I said I had to, to get a coffee. And I joked that because, you know, we, we both know that if we sit at a table and talk and take our masks off without coffee, we might get COVID. But if we sit at a table without masks and have a cup of coffee, the coffee somehow destroys the transmission of COVID. Now, you know, we all know that they're, they're trying to balance opening the economy with the, the, the you know, demands of trying to protect the, 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 the vulnerable. But every single one of us knows that the problem with laws and regulations around COVID is that some of them reflect science that might have been true in February of 2020, but we now know they're not even true. Yet the laws continue on. They come from different reasons, from different people and different sources. And, and the idea that you keep all of them 
when we all know, I mean, everybody, I mean, I don't, I don't know people who are highly hysteric about it, but everybody knows that there's contradictions within what's been said. But the thing about this, and this is so important in closing, is to understand that you can't end up looking at the Bible and saying, well, that's outmoded, that's outdated, or that's because they didn't have enough knowledge. Because given that you, to understand that the same one who in your place condemned he stood, so that mercy triumphs over justice, that he is the same one who speaks these words to you. And his words, he is the uncreated creator. He is the eternal one who creates you to exist in time. He is the infinite one who creates you finite. He is the, the one who has no environment, who creates you to live in an, an environment. And he is the one who is true, knows the heart of every human being. And it's not as if there's new knowledge about human nature that the creator of human nature will have to come to understand. And so every word he says is a word that we can trust and a word that we can understand is true and that will lead us towards love, will lead us towards freedom, will lead us towards liberty, will lead us towards mercy and will help us to walk in justice and will do so in a way that is good for our soul and good for our city and good for the country and good for creation. And so heed his words. This is especially important because in our day and age, if you're here, you're watching this, I know it is so unbelievably, crazily countercultural to give your life to Christ. But only the biblical gospel unlocks the mystery of who you are in a way that redeems you and will speak words of truth and love to you and mercy to you that will give you a new purpose, start to begin to free you from anxiety. It is so worth it to take that counter-cultural step and give your life to Jesus. And it might be hard to explain to the world, but every word of his is a word of liberty, of love, of justice, of mercy, freedom, of goodness. Please stand. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we give you thanks and praise that uh, you don't require some magical words for a person to become a Christian. Uh, Father, if there are any here who feel a a type of pressure, a, a, a compulsion, to surrender and to call out to Jesus that he would be their Savior and Lord. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit would move mightily in their lives, that they would not resist. And they don't need special words other than say, Jesus, be my Savior. Jesus, be mine. Jesus, I need mercy. Jesus, show me mercy. Come, Lord Jesus. The heart moves and And whatever words you are, whatever stumbling words you have are fine with God because he sees the desire for your heart. And we give you thanks and praise, Father, that Jesus will cross that what was before an infinite distance from him to that person. And, and, Father, in that moment of us surrendering our lives to Jesus, we are adopted as your child. You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come and live within. Our sins are forgiven. Mercy is shown condemnation has been dealt with, justice has been followed, but mercy has been given, and that now, Father, is the final word about us. 
that in a sense every single one of us who are in Jesus, that whether it is a, a, a literal tattoo or a spiritual tattoo, that every single one of us, the word over us is that mercy has triumphed over judgment. That that is the truth about who we are. And we ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would bring this truth deep to our hearts and bring Your Word deep to us that we might grow into those big clothes You have for us and so be free and live for Your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.